Welcome back to the Girls Talk Ag podcast, Plowing Through the Manure Online. Uh, I'm kind of giddy, and I don't get giddy often about this. Um, Karen and I are here this week. Uh, say hi, Karen. Hello. See, there she is. But we're missing one of our hot messes. And we're not really Jen. missing her. I think we'll hear her cackling in the background. I think it's going to be awesome because she's just going to hear one side of the conversation. But we have a replacement Campbell in the mix, and I'm really kind of excited about this. Uh, Mr. Chris Campbell. The man, the myth, the legend, Chris the Campbell. The legend. He is the legend. Like, we have talked about Chris. See, we love Chris um, simply because he's the only husband that listens. <laughs> to Not the podcast. To, what, to Jen tells him. Yeah, exactly. Let me be clear. To the podcast. When I say he's the only husband that listens, I don't mean he probably takes care of his boots or makes sure his underwear gets into the clothes basket. I'm, I don't live with him. I'm not sure. Maybe he's a unicorn. But uh, Chris, are you are you ready to rock and roll? I, I think so. Yes, I'm here. Okay. So first off, we have, I have an important world. question. Karen has an important question. Chris, tell us. How do you feel about pumpkin pumpkin spice and everything this time of year? Say that again. How do you feel about pumpkin spice and everything this time of year? I I won't eat pumpkin spice any time of year. You don't like pumpkin pie? No, I don't like pumpkin pie. Oh, my God. I don't even... You know, Jennifer makes these wonderful pumpkin squares with this cream cheese icing on top. I've heard about these. I love cream cheese icing, but it's not worth eating the pumpkin to get it. (laughs) but i love pumpkin so much like i could eat a pumpkin pie a lot of times i'll make one in like june because i just crave pumpkin pie i can tell you the pumpkin spice twinkies are yeah bad real bad anything twinkie usually is it doesn't taste the same as what it did when i was like seven (laughs) the most disappointing are the banana twins because those used to be awesome and now they suck do you know what I'm talking about? Do you guys have anything? These conversations are very real to me. Uh, I have a neighbor. I have a neighbor. We Every time I meet with him, we have to argue about the validity of the oatmeal cream pie versus the fudge round. <laughs> oh, they're both good. And, are you, and you, which... Have you ever noticed that the fudge round, that if you buy a box of them, they're small. But if you yeah. buy them individually, like grocery, a, 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 a gas station, they're huge. And, and they're, yeah. totally, they're totally different animal. I don't, yeah. The big oatmeal cream pies are amazing. The ones you get in the box, bullshit. Yeah. I think. I just, I don't even think it's worth buying the big, like, b- the box of them. You just need to go and spend. Are they still 25 cents or what do they cost now at the gas station? I haven't I priced one in a while because I'm fat. So I try to avoid that sort of stuff. <laughs> but it's so delicious. I love it all. Um, okay. So we hate pumpkin spice. Now that we've established that you're, I sad. did not. I did not realize that was an opinion of mine that mattered. But I didn't. Everything know where we're going to go on here, Chris. Well, and Chris, like we said, you're the only one that listens to the podcast, so we have to get all of these questions answered. You know, inquiring minds want to know. Um, my favorite thing, though, my favorite criticism right now that I've, I've that Jen's told us. Um, is about the guy that you were talking to that listened to our podcast like last week or a couple weeks ago and was like, thank God I'm not married to any of them. Yeah, I know exactly why you're referring to. <laughs> what? what do you say to that? Do you say I am the luckiest man in the world 
because not only am I married to Jen now, but I also get all of her friends. Well, actually, I told him I was numb to it by now. You're numb to it. <laughs> it's like, uh, what is that Stockholm syndrome where you fall in love with your captor? That's okay. I've never compared it to that. I will admit. <laughs> well, I just did for you. So there you go. It is like Stockholm syndrome for you. But and now he's so, going to use that, and he's going to be like, "But that's what Angie said, not me." That's what. So it's okay because Angie said it. You so know, the sh- real what? The sharing of information is a good thing at all times, and uh, I think sometimes you got to sacrifice a little bit of uh, privacy, Dignity. maybe. To, to get to get dignity, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a two way street, and uh, uh, some people are more comfortable than others. And, and I've learned to become more of a well rounded person and be a little more comfortable with it. I guess <laughs> I'm gonna have to have you talk to Carl because right now, anytime the podcast comes up, his eyes glaze over and he pretends that it's like my imaginary. Like he literally acts like it's like imaginary friends. Like Jen oh. and Karen are people that I've made up. Is Carl good with people in person? Yeah, he, well, yeah, he's a merchandiser guy, so he works with farmers, but I guess good with people in person would be, yeah, he's, he can have good conversations, although you can, I can tell now that I know him, it's like pulling teeth. Like, he'd much rather not be talking to anyone. Well, I think think that uh, I'm able to live through, you know, this imaginary world easier than I am in the real one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah see i am too and he kind of is just like eh, it's because he can mute it. us it's because he can use the mute button that chris can i'm sure he muted me a long time ago on the tweeter so so real questions though because i i really have some real questions because i think that uh you have some really good knowledge a really good insider you've you've been around long enough to where um you know, I I just think that you can lend some some really good stuff to the younger people that are listening. I want to hear how did you get started farming? Like you just grew up knowing you were going to farm, or how did that? How did you get? You know, tell us that story. Tell us about young Chris Campbell. Uh, well, I, my dad farmed, and uh, we come from a long line of family that's been right here uh, since eighteen thirty four or something like that. And uh, I enjoyed the work. Uh, uh, my dad allowed me to work at a young age, and, and I enjoyed the responsibility that that transferred to me. Um, and I was always, you know, wanting to do more. Uh, there is something, I don't want to use this word too much, but there's something romantic about the word, the work that we do. You know, and, and by that, I don't mean love romantic. I mean, you know, you, you have certain feelings and, nostalgic, uh, nostalgic. Yes, uh, you know, there's just uh, there's there's a feeling of you know watching animals eat and watching crops grow and uh, the smell of the dirt and everything. And I, and I at the same time uh, was attracted to the idea of running my own business and I enjoy numbers, uh, things like that. Uh, like I said, my dad uh, farmed and and we had livestock, we had cattle and hogs and grain and. Uh, uh, I got started working early and I got my, my own feet into it early. I had, you know, the four H calves and, and then a few hogs of my own. And, and, uh, uh, it just kind of built from there. Uh, when I 
I graduated high school in 1984, and we were just in the, the depths of, of the uh, 80s farm crisis. And uh, that has shaped my approach to farming ever since then in both good and bad ways. Uh, met Jennifer in 1991. We're married in 1992. Uh, she and I share, share a lot of the same values and same goals, and that's worked well. Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of funny if you if you focus on where we're at exactly right now. It always seems like a struggle, but if you look back 10, 20 years, even when times were worse than they are now, uh, you'll have mostly good memories. So, so uh, uh, I, I I don't know. You know, as my dad said, it's all he ever thought about doing, and and you know, once I got involved with it, he could see that uh, I had got the bug, and he can see now that. My kids have the bug. You, you, it's it's a very fascinating field. It really is. It's it's amazing to me to see the young kids that you don't even and and maybe it's just intrinsic. Like maybe it's just their, um, you know, they see what their parents are doing or whatever. But I have met you know, multiple young children, three years old or something like that, that a lot of people would argue they don't have the ability to make their own decisions that already have, you know, what you would say is mud and mud in their blood. I mean, they just grew up knowing or grow up knowing that they want to be involved in agriculture and there's no doubt about it. It's, it's an amazing thing, I think, to see. And, and, and not every kid's like that. There are a lot of kids that, you know, it, it could be until their 30s, 40s, or or maybe they never want to be on the farm, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that either. But it, it definitely is something that, you know, like you said, it, it's almost romantic um, how much you're tied or how much you love um, agriculture from the start kind of deal. And yeah, you can see it in, in your kids, um, for sure. Jen always talks about Cole being what, uh, what is he now? Thirteen going on. He's fourteen going on fifteen, but yeah, she calls him fourteen going on seventy-two. Yeah, because he's just like the old the old man on the farm, and that's what he wants to do. And and actually, I had a customer that they had a little boy that you know he was eight, nine, ten years old, and he hated when school started because it was you know of course harvest started soon after, and he just felt that he needed to be. Um, on the farm. Like it wasn't right for him to be in school when there was farm work to be done. So I thought that that was always an amazing thing. So you did know that you always wanted um, to farm then there was really no doubt in your mind. From, um, from a very early age, you know, it was, it was never even at six, I want to be a fireman. Uh, so uh, I spent an awful lot of time on the farm, even when I was with my dad. That's kind of the beauty of it is we get to do this as a family. Not only do my kids get to experience uh, you know, to work with me. I get to spend a lot of time with them. And it's in a different situation than a lot of families outside of farming do. Now, I'm not saying there aren't occupations where you can share it. Um, years ago, I was involved in uh, a county project, the Leadership Johnson County. And uh, we met with three people who were supposed to be kind of historians slash social, I want to say sociology, but, uh, you know, they, they looked at uh, social aspects in our uh, culture. And this man said one of the things he thought was missing in our culture was that 80, 90, 100 years ago, he said 
children spent time with their parents while they were working because most people were working out of their home, whether they were a farmer or a shoemaker or a harness maker or whatever. You know, they got to see the struggle day to day that their parents went through. Uh, they also got to see the rewards of completing work and, you know, accomplishment and things like that. And they knew how hard their parents had to work to uh, to make it. And they knew what kind of dedication that took now. And he said now a lot of people try to teach dedication through athletics or uh, competitions or academics. And he said it's just not the same uh, as as, as work ethic and learning the rewards of hard work and, and yet the sacrifices of, you know, sweat and dirt and things like that. So yeah, that's kind of the that. benefit yeah. for us is, uh, and, and I value that and that's worth more than the money. Although I've got to have the money to keep going. Yeah. No, that would make perfect sense in the sense, you know, in the, the respect that when your parents, and there's nothing wrong with the families that uh, have to, to be this way. It's not, you know, it's not like we're being critical of that side. But if you're sitting there watching how hard it is for your family, and I mean, I guess there will still be some disconnect. But when you have to see how hard it is to generate income, you probably take into consideration a little bit more when you're you're spending that money if the explanation is clear you know i i've also known farm kids that grew up you know just thinking that they were rich just because they could afford you know the newer things or whatever a lot of stuff was bought on credit or or something of that nature and they just you know the the it maybe there was a little bit more disconnect than it actually being a, a very closely related um family farm type of deal so how'd you meet jen how did you, how'd you guys meet? Uh, how I, You got to tell me that. I got to hear how you, I got to hear your side of the story. My version? My version? Yeah. Uh, you know, Jennifer and I, you could just about have seen her dad's grain bins from the top of our grain bins. Uh, oh. But they're across like the county. like Romeo and Juliet already. They're across the county line and uh, different school systems uh, and, uh, uh, my dad knew her, her, who her dad was, um, but uh, we had never really crossed paths. Uh, and uh, anyway, I was with a good friend of mine in Indianapolis at a, at a country and western bar uh, in, golly, like I said, 1991. And uh, I saw her and pointed her out to him. And he said, you know, I think I'm related to her. And uh, so uh, he he brought her over and introduced me. And uh, I... I uh, Thought about her calling her, tried to work up the nerve to call her for six months before I finally gave in and just said, I've got to swallow this frog and get it over with. And uh, it was it was tough. But I I, I mean, you, you put six months into thinking about it, it's obviously not going away. <laughs> You're just like, that's a hot piece of ace. I have to get her on my farm, right? That's- okay, that wasn't exactly the words that were going through my <laughs> Again, you could just say that's what Angie said. <laughs> I think it sounds beautiful and poetic that way, but no. So you 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 thought about her for about six months, and then you guys basically uh, oh, dated for. When you called, did she say Chris? Who? What? <laughs> you know, like I said, the, this friend of mine turns out they were cousins. So I think I think that uh, I think she kind of knew where I was headed with that. So. Oh, she was prepared too. She was like, "Why won't he call me?" Well, we can hope. 
we can hope that. Right? I, I mean, well, I, I obviously, it worked out because you're stuck with her now forever. I, I intended to call her quicker than that. Uh, I'm just not very, uh, I'm shy, you know. Right. I've met you. I know. Sometimes you're a little shy. Well, most times I've met you, we've been drinking, so. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And I'm a little abrasive, so you'll never, ever know how that's going to turn out. So, well, so did I, you? I, I'm a little more outgoing, so. That's, yeah, once you've been drinking, you should have, uh, did you and Jen start drinking early this morning? Because you should have. She said it had been kind of a rough, rough day. I'm gathering by her Twitter that it had been a little bit of a rough day there. You know, uh, we spend, it is more work for us to get ready to go to the field than it is to actually go to the field. And uh, the clock is ticking and we got all this stuff we want to get done before we actually get started. And uh, the tension is starting to build here. So among all of us. So. Yeah. Is that fire? It's still early. Hashtag, it's still early. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. It's still early. No. Yeah. And that's the hardest part is like once you're ready to go, you just want it done. At least that's how I am. And I can only imagine on the farm it's that much worse because your crop is, is your money is literally sitting out there. You're looking at it. It's almost ready for you to go pluck it for lack of a better term. And you have all of these things that could kind of come into play to really kind of F it up. And uh, well, so there, I can there, understand your. Go ahead. There comes the, the Twitter knowledge in there. Somebody said the other day, nothing good ever happens to your corn after black layer. Exactly. That, I mean, that's really, and that's so as an elevator for me, I'm the same way because I'd rather just know what we've got. Like, I'd rather you just go out and I don't have the emotional tie to it that you guys do because I haven't spent the last, you know, I've spent the last several months like trying to plan or thinking about it or, you know, whatever it may be, but not, not in the same standpoint as what you guys have. And I know for me, the anticipation leading up to harvest is very, you know, you, you can almost cut the tension with the knife sort of deal, you know, and then it starts and, and then it, it, until you get to about 80, 85%, you still have a boatload of questions, at least for me, you know, like what, how things are going to go, what the rest of the year is going to look like, what the market's going to do, you know, how many bushel are going to come your way, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I, I freaking hate, um, August, September, because you've already basically made it through the bulk of your production weather and you're just waiting for harvest to show up kind of deal. It's my least favorite time, at least, of the year for me. Uh, my least favorite time is spring. Uh, is it really? Oh, oh the, the, yeah. The weather, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, on, on April 15th, you know you're going to plant your corn over the next eight weeks, but you don't know when. You know, it's, yeah. you don't, you know is it going to be a nice, easy slide in 10 days or... Is it going to take the next 40 days in and out? And what kind of problems are you going to have? Uh, but it's more work for me to worry about it than it is to actually do it. Yeah. yeah whether, whether it's spring or fall. Yeah. I think 99.99% of farmers would agree with that sentiment. Is it's, it's the what ifs eat you up more than the actual process of getting everything out. When, it's, when, when it is raining in you know, on April 25th, you're just a mess and you're exhausted. Once you finally get to work, you feel better. You feel energized. You can see the sun, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And by the sun, it's, I mean that you can see uh, something positive. I don't necessarily mean just actual sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I, I, uh, I understand what you're saying completely. It's just the light at the end of the tunnels there. And, and at least for the most part, you, you have a pretty solid understanding that it's not a train at that point. Right. Um, you know, or at least you hope to God it isn't. Um, I was going to ask you, how did you get started? Did your family always have pigs or how did you get started? Cause you know, Jen talked about in a couple shows ago, um, 98 the the hog crisis right and buying a pair of shoes and yeah, she told I, the story of buying you boots for christmas and you that's know that's the best and, christmas present i've ever had <laughs> she was said she was so nervous and she never really said how it turned out but she'll always remember that that was the christmas present that she got you was that pair of work boots but you know did did your family always do you say grow hogs or is that weird right you raise hogs you raise hogs okay so you did raise. your family always raise Hogs, or was that something that you decided you wanted to do in addition to row cropping? Uh, my dad had hogs. Uh, okay. My dad had hogs since he started farming. My great my dad's dad actually was just a, or a, he was a, uh, he worked in Indianapolis and had a, a small acreage attached to the farm we're on now. Uh, and he, he had, a, he had a few animals, but my great grandfather was the one that my dad worked with and got started farming. With. Okay, and he would have had a few hogs, but uh, you know it would have been intermittent. It would have been like you know I, I bought five gilts and they're going to Pharaoh, and then when they're gone, the hogs might be off the farm for a while. It wasn't a full time gig. Uh, my dad, when he started farming, he had hogs full time. Okay, and uh, uh, now we in at that time, this is in the '60s when my dad started farming. Most of the livestock farms in this area were, were tenant farms. You would have a doctor's family in Franklin, in our play, uh, circumstance, that owned the farm and would invest the buildings. So you would raise the the livestock on shares with them. And Dad did not own any facilities. Okay. And uh, that was very common through here. Was the you know a, a farm that was that was rented this way as opposed to the way it's looked at now. And uh, well, the family decided to sell that farm while I was in high school, and Dad was at a stage in his career where he. Uh, it just didn't make sense to continue on with the livestock. and uh, uh, But I was able to take what resources we have and get started back into the hogs and cattle. Uh, cattle, I, I fed, cattle has always been kind of a hobby more for, for me. Now, my dad fed cattle uh, as, a, as part of his enterprises, but I haven't. Uh, okay. I was, we just kind of mess around with the cattle. You've just fed them because you like cows. Yeah. Kind of yeah, you know, I always tell everybody that I started farming because I like to mow board plow, I like to cultivate corn, and I wanted to feed cattle. And okay. now we do we do almost all reduced tillage. I, I have a you know a big sprayer that I douse everything with herbicides to control the weeds instead of sitting on a tractor all day cultivating it. And I spent most of my livestock career messing around with hogs, so I, I guess I got off track somewhere. <laughs> You got lost somewhere along the line. So you were in high school when you made your initial investment into farming? Is that, did I hear you, you right, or is that, or right uh, around actually, there? Uh, of course, I always had 4-H cabs from the time I was 10, and I, I yeah. considered them an enterprise. Yeah, uh, at that yeah. time, it wasn't, the 4-H thing wasn't even what it is now. And, and uh, we always had just, you know, common calves, and we fed them and uh, did show them, but uh when I was a freshman in high school, actually in eighth grade before I became a freshman, I bought three purebred bread gilts at, okay. at an auction. And uh, Dad 
had bought a, uh, we had a pull together farrowing house and he didn't want my hogs to be part of his. And so I started farrowing with those three gilts and, uh, uh, fed the pigs out from those and turned out that we, we bought these three purebred gilts and, uh, they didn't do very good. And, uh, over the years we had to learn to kind of adjust that sort of thing. But, uh, about the time that I started raising hogs, Dad was getting out. That's when we moved off that farm, and uh, we I started building buildings in 86. Uh, and we had a few older buildings. We poured some concrete in, you know, fed the hogs just outside, uh, had sows and dirt lots, and uh, it just, just pretty common. That, yeah, that... Uh, um I don't know. It's just amazing to me that, that because you guys are, are still, and maybe it's a little bit more prevalent in where you're at in Indiana or whatever, but to not have the commercial, because you, you sell on the, the open market side of things, you're not growing or raising for someone. You're right. You guys are, are on your own kind of deal. The word you're looking for is independent. Independent. And, yes. Yes. Uh, independent hog production in Indiana is still pretty strong. Uh, there, there is not the uh, gigantic Smithfield uh, operations right now. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's not coming this way. In fact, I know that uh, all the big farm Southern Illinois. I can't think of their name right off the top of my head. Uh, they've Masha. got a, a Moshoff. So they've got a farrowing unit 30 miles from here. Uh, but you know, there's there's a 500 sow operation with two brothers running north of me and. Uh, there's a family operation up here with 1,400 sows. That is, uh, they're doing their own contracting. They're pushing their finishing hogs onto other farms. Uh, there is still, a, you know, there's an independent stock. There's two independent stockyards within 35 miles. Uh, I've got several outlets for my hogs. Uh, that's we, that's awesome. There are very few, any contract farm barns that are around here are generally uh, being contracted by another farm, uh, independently owned farm. Okay. And I mean, I can't say, I can't speak for, for all of Michigan just because, of course, I, I don't know. I just know a lot of the growth that we're seeing now because you have that cold water plant that just got put up in, in southern Michigan, which is amazing for our pork producers in the state because prior to that, we had to truck out of state. You know, I, I have one customer that's north of Grand Rapids by about an hour, and he was shipping hogs into Pennsylvania um, to be processed prior to this plant coming up. Um, and I believe he is still independent, but a lot of the other guys are, are contract, uh, stuck in the contract or they're, they're under contract or something like that. And then there's been a big push for some of my younger customers, um, to do that where the, the company, almost like the, the share side of things where the company builds the barn for them and guarantees a certain amount of income for them for so many years and takes that out of that, the, the cost of building the space. Does that make sense? Am I even repeating it properly? Have you heard anything of that? I, I, I had, I had not ever seen the paperwork myself. Okay. But yeah. I know, but you I have, know the type of range, the type yeah. range that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting to me because it's, it's almost like a, a share thing for the first 10 years or whatever. And then, and then it's yours, I think. I don't know. Well, I have I have a different take on that type of operation. Uh, in my opinion, these gigantic hog uh, conglomerates, for lack of a better term, they could not finance all that on their own. Yeah. And they're moving out, and they're moving the the disagreeable portions 
of hog farming onto the contract farmer. The contract farmer gets to repair the barn. He gets to borrow the money to build the barn. He gets to handle the hog manure from the barn. Uh, But in, you know, you're, you're burning up your collateral for this other uh, entity. They they couldn't borrow money to put up, you know, 80, 80 different confinement barns, but they can get all these other people to borrow money for them. And so you're taking your assets and putting them on the line for this other company. I don't like it, but apparently, apparently it's, the way of the future, because uh, we're kind of getting run over a little bit here. The margins are getting really lean in the hogs, and um, uh, but like I said, in 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 my area now, in, when I say in my area in Johnson County, there's only three commercial hog operations left. Uh, okay. But east east of me, in a corridor about seventy miles north and south, there's still quite a bit of independent hog production going on. It's interesting to see. It's just interesting to see the difference in everything because of the fact that. Um, you know, I don't really know, and I don't know how Iowa works. I just know that across the countryside are these dotted hog setups, you know, where you've got two two or three large barns sitting beside each other in the middle of nowhere, um, and and that's that's what you have. I that's mean, that, what and my guys have in Iowa, but they don't own the hogs, but they do take care of the manure. So somebody, they own the buildings and they take care of the manure, but they do not own the actual hogs. And don't have okay. anything to do with them. So that's what I wondered. It, go ahead, Chris. You're you're paying a flat rate per space, and okay. of course, I think I think in many instances there are uh, performance or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, performance benefits. You know, if, if you have your death loss is less than this, you might get a, a bonus. Uh, yeah. But I like I said, I don't know much about it. I'm, no one has ever approached me and said. You know, would you like to put hogs in your buildings for us? Yeah. Would you if they did? Uh, right now, I'm still interested in owning my own hogs. Yeah. Uh, and, and Not to put you on the spot, but... My buildings being, as we were a federal finish operation five months ago, uh, they're not exactly what they're looking for either. I mean, you know, we, we have renovated to make them into what they are now. Uh, these big operations, they're looking for... Uh, multiples of so many head, you know, that they can move in at one time and, uh, you know, might require a little bit of finagling to get the maximum production out of. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, and and that's, I I guess I understand. It's just an interesting thing to see um, just because of the fact that the growth continues to be there and, and at least the growth in demand, you know, but then the growth in supply is there. The the thing with hogs that's so different than cattle, for instance, or a, a row crop or, or something of that nature is that you can, can finish them pretty quickly. Um, so you have such extreme swings, it seems, in the market because you can have, you know, you have one one spot where all of a sudden there's a fear over loss of supply or something or an increase in demand. And and all of a sudden the, the market rallies as a result. And then it, it takes a matter of a couple months for suddenly, you know, we have too much out there or whatever. And the next thing you know, you're down at levels where we're trading at right now. And you're you're wondering how the heck you're going to make, you know, make a black make black, black ink out of red, so to speak, it seems like well, in, in hogs. Hogs are very responsive. You know, it doesn't take that long for one sow to become 10 pigs to become 25 pigs yeah. every year, you know. Uh, it's just it, so It's amazing. a very short cycle, you know. Uh, yeah, because it takes what? It takes six months to Yeah, six to finish. months. You know, it depends on, of course, years ago Depending. we were trying to push, we were trying to get down to like 24 weeks. 
Okay. But since then, slaughter weights have climbed so much, we're back up to the 180 days. Um, okay. Every now and then, we ship some out of 165, but uh, on average, 180 days on okay. our farm. Yeah, so it is so damn responsive. It's almost like rabbits. They're all to a certain extent, except for they're more of a pain in the ass. The the genetic improvement in the hogs in terms of growth, feed efficiency, and you know the reproductive traits is just in the past twenty years it's been enormous. Uh, so that part is just fascinating. It's just so fascinating to me the whole entire thing. Like that's honestly on the the hog side, and I haven't really asked a lot of people about it because you don't. I don't really know a lot of. Uh, um hog producers i you know i mean i do but I, it's never really been one of those things where you sit down and are like okay tell me about your hog barns you know and that's i was actually asking a, a feeder that i work with I, I had to sell him some corn to get him through to harvest time and and they're expanding they're they're looking to to double if not triple um their production because of that introduction of the cold water plant and the changes that it is in the the michigan market which is not something you know most hog guys want to here, of course, is that more supply is is coming online. Of course, it's there's more demand, you know, in, in the economic side of things, you could say. But um, it, it's just really interesting. And I was like, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean for it to be the Spanish Inquisition. And he actually he was like, No, no, I really enjoy answering questions, so ask away. So it was it was kind of a a fun little deal um, to kind of chat with him about. But so. The one thing that I was really interested in, or I thought, because Jen's always telling us, you know, the Chris Campbellisms, and uh, we we love them. But with you having experienced farming for as long as you have, we we talked about it in last week's podcast with um, Kelly Watley there, uh, because they started around the same time that you and Jen did. Um, you've really seen the the good and the bad. I mean, you've seen the extreme moves in the market. Um, you know what it's like. Uh, to to not be able to to see ends meeting anywhere and, and knowing that you have to try to figure out how to put another crop in the ground or or grow you know raise more hogs as you go forward what what would you say your advice to farmers is to young farmers now well, I don't know I'm qualified for that oh you're definitely uh, qualified you're married to Jen so you're an expert right right uh, you know I don't really know uh, I, I am disturbed a little bit by everyone talking about how bad things are right now. Uh, You know, in my career, I have sold a hell of a lot more corn under $3 than I have sold over $3 still. And and I know what it was like for my parents in the 80s when I was starting farming, and I know what it was like when the hog market went to $10, and I honestly can't see the pain out there around me yet that, that some people will talk about. Yeah. Uh, but if you think about it, there's I, a fair amount of farmers who missed both of those. I mean, they were either not born yet or really young in the 80s. And then, you know, even in the 90s, it just it seems like there's definitely a different mentality as far as I can see. Um, that's interesting you say that. I've always said that there's there's a, a niche in around where I started that we're, we are way too conservative. Uh and I think that that can hurt and help you. It's going to keep me in business. It might hinder my growth a little bit. And in, in terms of I won't take the chances that maybe I need to. It is so uh, funny that you it's funny that you say that because I talk about in my, my marketing talks about um, hedgers 
you know, people who aren't afraid to market at a profit, et cetera, et cetera. And the one thing that I talk about is that a lot of times they may miss some opportunities that present themselves because you're so conservative in expenditures. It keeps you around long term, but you may have um, stalled growth or so. I always think about my dad because he is the best guy in the world to show um, why you should buy something when it's a good deal because he never does. And so then he spends the next six months kicking his own butt over not buying so I'm the exact opposite in the worst way possible. I'm just like, nope, good deal, going to buy it. Not even going to think about it. And it just kills him that I'm that way, but I am somewhat that way. Um, but you, So you think that you're you're conservative on, on those extra expenditures, perhaps maybe to a, a fault, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I mean, there's got to be some balance, some balance there. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of a farmer in my head right now that is, uh, he, he's gone now, but he would have been 30 or 40 years older than me. And he, he actually went into the 80s in a good cash position. He hadn't really stuck his neck out. But as ground just kept went, going down, he was waiting for the bottom. And uh, it was always $100 away. And he never, he never... He never bought. And then it started coming back up and people were buying it and he didn't think they had the finances to do it. And he told he told his one of his sons, he said, We'll buy it the next time around. And it never came. Never came back, yeah. And uh, yeah, so you gotta kinda watch you gotta kinda watch that. Uh, I don't know again, it comes down to the happy medium, you know. Uh, you're not going to, just like marketing your corn, it's it's you will make more mistakes trying to pick the top then you will try to sell it what's a decent price, you know. Uh, It's just not, you have to recognize what is possible and what is not. I think it's interesting just how many people can't remember before $5 corn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that boggles my mind. Because, I mean, it wasn't Uh, that long ago where it was, you know, where we are now. Or last $2. I know that the seed price is up and some of the inputs are up. Well, I mean, fertilizer is not at the highest because it was, you know, five or six years ago, it was like 1200 bucks a ton. So, um, but it it just amazes me how they just can't focus. I mean, it's like before $5 corn, they like had their memories erased. Well, the minute somebody says we're at a new plateau, you better get short. (laughs) Right. It's a new, it's a new, uh, well, I say that all the time that we're in the new range now, but I think, I think we are, I think we're in the post-ethanol era corn price range. The, the idea that $5 corn would continue forever was, was really selfish, I think, um, in the standpoint that it was like, we thought we would be the only ones to produce it forever. You know what I mean? Like no one else in the world would be able to, to, uh, figure out how to grow corn because we are just natural geniuses versus the rest of those, you know, folks out there kind of deal. And and so that was the one part that always kind of, it always made me scratch my head. I mean, at the time when you're involved in it, you could kind of see, okay, yeah, I can see why there would be a reason that we wouldn't go below $5 again. But, you know, with the hindsight bias that we have now, it's pretty easy to see that, of course, you're not going to continue to see an increase in demand for corn like we saw you know, during the whole renewable fuels explosion. And we added 5 billion bushel of demand in a short period of time. And, and, you know, no wonder the, and then in the middle, we had a once in a generation drought. So, you know, of course the market was, was really, really up there, but then we showed that we could produce the hell out of it. And, and here we are now, 
You know, and that's with my com- customers, we have the conversation, or at least that's what I've been having with them lately. That if you can't pencil out, um, you know, if you can't make it work at 370 or 380 average sale price going forward, because right now we have a lot of land coming back into possible production, not coming back into production, but coming back into availability in Michigan. And there's a lot of talk about, well, what can I afford? What can I afford? And, and I've been telling a lot of my customers to just basically count on you know, 350 to 380 as a, as an average cash price, maybe a bit better if they sell ahead, but. But I think the people who are going to be picking up that land are going to be the ones who were conservative at $5 corn or $7. They would have to be. I mean, cause when the best time to expand is when prices are low, because that's when a lot of other people aren't making it meet. So there's a, there's a little problem with that though. Uh, somebody said, I can't remember when it was, it was on Twitter. I get a lot of my little, uh, knowledge tidbits on Twitter. Someone said the best time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. Oh, mm-hmm. goodness. The problem, with, yeah. the problem with that is, is a lot of times that's my blood in the streets and I won't be able to buy. Yeah. Yeah, you're already weakened um, beyond the ability to, to really... Um, do much or at least at that point you don't you don't know how it's going to be going forward so you don't really have the extra capital to to invest at you know in, into something when i was 20 years old uh ground bottomed in this area at about 900 dollars an acre it had hit a peak of about 36 3700 in 1980 and it, it, it dropped it dropped let's say i would have been 20 in 1986 so yeah about six years it, it went from 3600 to 900 Nobody would loan a farmer any money at all to buy it. Uh, we were going around talking to you know all these young farmer programs, things, trying to figure out how to get some of this ground bought, and it just nobody would work with us. And my dad said the only time uh, a farmer, an average farmer, can buy is when things are high. Uh, and it turned out, you know, ground comes around now; it's worth eight thousand dollars an acre. It would be easier for me to get a loan now than it was when it was eight hundred. Yeah. Uh, of course, the whole borrowing money thing just uh, boggles my mind how it works. Because, like, in the first place, all I, for, for my entire career, all everybody's focused on is working capital. All your work, and it, it's changing, too. Originally, it was, well, we'd like to see a, a one-and-a-half-to-one ratio. Well, now they're talking ratios in terms of your gross sales or, you know, things like that. And I think the working capital is for the banker. I know you're supposed to have this reserve of cash to jump on stuff. But I kind of feel like I'd have been better off. With, I've been trying to build the working capital. Yeah. Uh, but I think I've sacrificed uh, growth maybe trying to build this nest egg that's sitting there and not really doing anything. And I say that it's it's not a nest egg because I don't have to have cash. It's just the amount of money I don't have to borrow to put out my crop. You asked what kind of advice I'd give somebody. I think it's easier for me to look back and say, why well, I could tell you what not to do or what I have failed at. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that... that I, when I started farming, one of the things I did not recognize was how I needed to be able to interact with people. Uh, you know, you think you're going to be a farmer, you're going to take care of, uh, what is that Jolene Brown says, the, the seeds, the feeds, and the breeds. And that's what I wanted to do. I'm comfortable working by myself, preparing stuff, taking care of livestock, being a tractor for hours and hours on end by myself. But in the end, you can't people around you. Uh, whether that be your family, whether that be the people you rely on to 
to work for you, labor, or the people you do business with, or the people you want down the road to be your prospective clients, building those relationships. Yeah. And uh, my people skills, that, that is one thing I really wish, I wish I wish I could have, I wish in a class in high school or college, they would have said, you know, here, here is how you deal with people. Because uh, that is completely, I've completely failed at that one, I, I feel like. Now, maybe I haven't, but, uh, you know, we're most critical of ourselves. I don't think you uh, have, because I have enjoyed when I've met you, but I don't have anything to give you. Like, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. Like, what I think really is, like, on the bottom of the the list of importance. But, um, you know, I think you and Jen both are, are great at... Um, Telling your story, so to speak, even though you may be the quieter version of the two. Um, well, I, I'm able to do it through this magic wall of the internet where no one can actually see me. No. That's why we now, podcast, you, Chris. Right? That's just it. And that's Jen's making a YouTube page, and I'm like, so we'll put pictures up of random things. But did you, you got started on Twitter after Jen did then, right? Because you yeah, were on. And, and I got to. I got to ride on her coattails there. I picked up a lot of followers quick because of that. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, because you didn't have Twitter. The first time we met was that top producer um, in, like, 2014. So it was, like, three years Correct. ago, almost four years ago. Uh, and you didn't have Twitter I was looking this up. I looked it up. Uh, February 14 was when I got on Twitter. Okay, and so I right after. It, it took... It took me like a year and a half to get to a thousand tweets, and I'm still only at like twenty six hundred. Right. Uh, I do that in a day. Yeah. That's so I like to, I like to think of myself as being more of a quality rather than quantity kind of person. Oh, I always, I'm almost offended. I always, I always tell tell Jennifer that you know you look at some of these huge Twitter accounts; they might have ten thousand followers, but they've got like a hundred thousand tweets. Yeah. I've got 22,000 followers, and I won't get 2,600 tweets. That's nearly a follower per tweet. Look at that. You're amazing. I want to Now I have to look at my ratio because this is just embarrassing. Okay, I only well, have 50,000 tweets, so it's okay. It's well, I mean, like I said, I picked up the first seven or 800 followers just by being Mr. Plowwife. So. Right, Mr. Plowwife. I love that because I don't think Carl would ever call himself Mr. Goddess of Grain. In fact, he visibly, like gags if anyone ever calls him that you can see him like uh you know like a part of him slowly dies like he the funniest part is is he knew me on twitter before he knew me in particular but uh so it was always it's a it's a fun thing and it's what i i think twitter i mean i was gonna ask you because you're you're a dude so it's a little bit different for you but you got you've you know really kind of developed some some good relationships with through twitter Right with other farmers and and learn oh, yeah. like you said yeah. learn things uh, and you know the Facebook thing uh, Jennifer as Jennifer will tell you I'm sure she has I lurk on her Facebook it's some entertainment and gossip for me right. uh, and I figured Twitter would be the same I figured it was just some stupid platform to make jokes and things like that and it is there's some damn good humor on it right. uh, Dwayne Faber but I can honestly yeah I can honestly tell you that. I, I, I wondered if I ought to sort these people into two Twitter accounts or Jennifer says I need to learn how to do a list or something. But I think I've made money off Twitter. Uh, I think Twitter's made me a better marketer. I think that Twitter has uh, allowed me to uh, broaden 
the perspectives I have. Because originally, you know, when you make phone calls, you're talking to your buyer. You're normally just getting from the farm up perspectives. And, man, I've been able to pick up perspectives of guys who trade, you know, from the floor and don't know anything about what's going on out in the country other than what they're picking up off Twitter. Yeah. And I have gotten a lot better handle on the backyard-itis thing, yeah. uh, both just knowing what the weather is out there, plus seeing somebody else go through a severe case of backyard-itis and me not. I've been able to say, wow, i got to make sure I don't get into that. Yeah. Uh, and there's just – and, you know, you get to follow a few bearish people that are overly bearish and a few overly bullish people, and you get kind of a balance, and, and it, it's really helped me out in terms of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's hard to believe that it can be that important, you know, at the same time when there's, you know, somebody putting up a GIF of who knows what, somebody rolling their eyes all the time or whatever, and that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, if you glean it out, and I'm not going to lie, I, of all the Twitter people I follow, there's probably only about 50 where I really get good, solid information off of. Karen and Angie are doing that. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Karen and Angie, Weed Girl and uh, me. Are right, right there. Oh, yeah. We're listed. Well, I, I uh, Angie, I, I quote you uh, with my wheat trade. <laughs> oh, so, uh, which one? What you did you do? Because Jen I'll, mentioned it, but what? Do, and you don't. About, I can cut it out later if you don't want me to share it. But what about 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 two years ago? You said I've never heard anybody bitch about having wheat contracted at six bucks, and I never have. And <laughs> and I, I t- I've taken that one to heart. Uh, <laughs> I never have ever five fifty five twenty five six bucks. Never heard a guy bitch about it ever. Uh, I I I probably screenshotted it. My my phone is just full of screenshots of little things. I like, hey, that's important, but I don't think I'll ever be able to find it again. So I'm gonna right. take a picture of it. Uh, <laughs> it's true though. It is. I mean, you've never been sad. Four dollar corn's the same way. You know, like the only time I ever heard anyone complain about four dollar corn is when we went to six, seven, or eight. But the reality is. You know, like we talked about, those days are probably a little bit behind us. And I would rather, I've always said it too, I would rather have someone complain to me about having corn sold for, you know, oh, well, I sold that 5,000 bushel for too cheap when they have, you know, 50, 100, 200,000 more to sell than say, oh, God, what am I going to do with this 100,000 I have unsold and the market's dropped 80 cents? You know, like there's just certain things that I've gained and $6 wheat's one of them. Anytime you can sell $6 wheat, sell your neighbors. You know, that's... well, when, when, when corn was this is dating me here, but when corn was trading two dollars all the time, yeah. uh, we would always say that you know selling corn for two fifty or less, and it, or, you know was whether or not you got to stay in business. Selling corn for over two fifty was whether or not you got to trade your pickup truck, right. which was more important. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's when I started. I, I told that story of Colin, and you know, I'll pay you a dollar seventy. You know, picked up and everybody, if you give me two and a quarter, you know, and, and, uh, I think nowadays it's just muddy. Like, like you said, the under 250 was whether you got to stay in business over 250 is whether you got to trade the truck in kind of deal. And now we just don't know what that number is just yet. Cause there's so many guys that want it to be $5. And then when it gets to five, they want it to be six. Well, there's, there's so many emotions involved in, in, in this whole trading corn thing. And I don't know how you, Disconnect them. I, I, I have a little bit of advantage. I'm able to talk over with my dad, and he's a little bit of the more old-fashioned type of marketer. You know, uh, Dad has said before that uh, he feels wealthy when his bins are full of corn because there's potential. 
And I say, well, I feel at risk because it could go down or go yeah. out of condition. Yep. And uh, uh, I always joke with him. I always say there's two times my dad won't sell corn. He won't sell corn when it's going up because it might go higher. Right. And he won't sell corn when it's going down because surely it'll turn around <laughs> and come back a little bit. That's the best thing I've ever heard, and it's so true. Every I think 90% of farmers out there are in the same, you know, same same boat, now, so to speak. I've got to be honest, though. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm heavily into selling forward. I, I, I use a lot of options. I sell at conservative levels. I, I kind of look at my cash flow and say, we budgeted this at 380. What would happen if we sold the whole thing at 395? You know, how much yeah. does that make it look? So, you know, let's just try to beat what we projected. Yeah. My dad, on the other hand, he's more of a maverick. Let's fill our bins and, and wing it. And most of the time he does about as well as I do. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just that I can't take that risk. I don't want to sleep. I want to sleep at night. Yeah. And he's a little more comfortable being a little more rogue, I guess I should say. Right. I call that the cost of but, peace of mind. Um, your ability to give up because it's it's opportunity cost that you give up when you make sales, right? So it's the same thing as going into the casino and you're up X amount of dollars and you walk out and say, well, I lost a hundred thousand and people look at you like, what? I didn't win the jackpot. You know what I mean? Like you're still walking out ahead, a heads ahead kind of deal. And, and, uh, in my opinion, and I, I, like I said, I don't have the emotional connection necessarily to the crop growing in the field as what you guys do, because it's, it's different. You know, I call it bushel babies kind of deal where they're, they're your, your babies. So the, what you grow is, is there. And, and, uh, I had one guy tell me a long time ago and it made the most sense. You grow it to sell it, you know? And, and so that's just like you raise your kids to push them out into the world someday, even though it sucks and, and you don't want to, you know, you grow it to sell it kind of deal. So that's, I was going to what is the, the best thing about farming? I think you kind of touched on that to you is, is being able to do it with your family, right? Is that what you would call the best thing or is there something that's, yeah, even I, I enjoy the, I enjoy the, you know, the, the, the work varies so much. You know, we, we get to do construction projects. We get to do mechanical repair projects. We get to, you know, work in the field. Uh, and I enjoy running my own business. I enjoy the time. Uh, flexibility I have, although I think that's a little misleading. How can, you know, most farmers out here are working 60 plus hours a week, but yet we, we, we claim we have all this freedom. Of course, with the hogs, you don't, you know, you, you start to really cut into that again. Or the, I just, you know, as we've been changing our hog operation over from feral to finish to just uh, feeder to finish, yeah. that's one thing I keep telling myself is at least it wasn't a dairy. You know, oh, uh, yeah. That's, I have a friend right now that's trying to get out of well, they've been planning on getting out of dairy for five years now, I think. And uh, it's either one thing or the other. Either the dairy has been is profitable, so they don't want to jump out at that point in time because it's, they're making more money than what they had and it's helping cover the crap margins that they've had the last seven years. Or the dairy price sucks so bad that selling their cows would get them nothing. Kind of deal. So it's back to not selling on the way up and not selling on the way down. Yeah, basically. It's the exact same thing. Like they don't, you know, and, and so it's always really interesting. I think the reality is um, neither one of them wanted to not have to milk because they've that's all they've done. All of their, I mean, they're in their 70s and, and uh, you know, they've they've milked all of their existence. I don't think they'd know what to do with themselves if they had that much free time. 
All those dairy people, they're, they're their own breed. They you really know, are. Uh, Jennifer, Jennifer, I went to a meeting in northeastern Indiana one time. This has been 15 years ago. I ran into these two guys. They were 65, 70 years old. They milked cows since they were born, you know. Yeah. And I said, what? And I was talking to him about because I'm interested in livestock. And I was talking to him about because there's a, there, at that time, there was a family down here that had just gone to what they called, uh, they milked two and two because they both had kids in school and they wanted to be able to be done milking in time to go to their kids. Two and you know, two. Or whatever. So two in the morning. Two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Ugh. Pardon? Two, two in the morning. Ugh. Two in the morning, two in the afternoon. So I said to these fellows, I said, how do you do it, you know? And they said, well, we, will, we, we milk at noon and midnight. And we've done it for 25 years. And I said, oh, how do you split that up? Do one of you do one, one of you do the other? I go, oh, no, we never miss one, you know? And these guys, these two brothers, they claimed they had never missed a milking. Wow! In I forget how many years. And, yeah. Uh, that, that's a that's a. I mean, I, livestock takes dedication, even with hogs, but that dairy thing—that's a whole new mindset. Oh, it's a crazy mindset. I mean, it's it is. It's and I don't want to say crazy like you know, ugh, it's, it's a bad not thing. Something but that somebody else can come in and do for you for a week while you're gone. You know, it's yeah. not. It's not like that. You know, you just can't. Some really people are able on. to do that. Yeah. I, I, I've got a I've got a good friend that he milks for his in laws, you know, so they can get away. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it it again it comes down to what I said a few minutes ago. It comes down to lo- knowing how to work with people. Yeah. And how to you know develop those relationships. Have folks help and, you. Uh, that's tough. Yeah. People are people are harder to manage than sows. <laughs> yeah. And cows. And- I just yeah I would have such a hard time because it's just. I mean, raising cattle for beef is is one thing, but then the dairy cows, you know, because you're with them every day. Like, I can still remember my favorite when we milked, and we only milked for about a year and a half, two years, and it was number 25. And she was the best damn, she didn't have a name, she was just number 25. Best damn cow ever. She was so sweet, you know, and and, uh, how you don't get so attached to them, too, which I think is another part of it, is it's like they're keeping back their, their heifers that they you know, have have worked with for many years just because I think there's an attachment there to a certain level. I don't know. It's interesting to me, but yeah, but doing dairy, like livestock in and of itself is a challenge. Dairy is an extra special all day, you know, no, they don't care if it's Christmas. They don't care if you've got the stomach flu, um, sort of adventure, you know, and then all you can do is pray that your kids get old enough to be able to milk eventually kind of deal. At least I would, if it were me, because I'm lazy. Like I can't, I'm terrible at commitment, like, like time commitment. Like, oh, I have to do that today at three. No, I don't really want to, you know, not in the mood kind of deal. But so one thing I have to ask before we wrap it up, we have heard the story. One of Jen's most favorite hot mess stories are calling poison control multiple times. Do you have any recollection of the time Casey ate the entire tube of toothpaste? In the hotel room. Oh, yeah, I remember. I, I did not know she ate it while in the hotel room. Uh, when she, when it came out, I did not know what it was. Jennifer identified it. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess that was on my watch. I'll, I'll admit to that. What is your favorite or, like, your most hot mess dad story? Do you have one, you know, with, with the kids taking one of them somewhere, having a diaper blowout or something of that? Like, do you have a... A good story you could extra share with us about being a dad. Know about it. Right? Yeah. Extra wow, points I, if it's a surprise to her in the end where she's like, what? Um, well, I didn't know there was going to be a test. Yeah. Uh, I didn't I didn't study for this. Oh, man. That's a, it's like being a dad all over again. 
that and just about most of the times I have had uh, those failures. Uh, Jennifer's known about it, and I'm sure she's made it well known to everybody else. So it couldn't be much of a secret. <laughs> That's depressing. But my favorite thing right now is uh, still will always be the picture of you this weekend having her go up to the second rack of wood in Lowe's. Is that? You know, she, I, I, I got to give her credit. She jumped right up there to do that. She's a badass. Uh, I said, I need those board. I said, I need those boards up there. And she just said, well, I'll, I'll get up there and see what I can do. And, and of course, you know, I, after I got her up, after she got up there, we got to, I, I gave her my pocket knife so we cut the bands off of the boards so that they, you know, they had them all banded into a big bundle. And I got to rise in that, you know, the reason that they put them up there is because there's no safety things to keep them from falling. <laughs> and, and now she, uh, we're, we're making Lowe's a very dangerous place to be because the boards start falling off there. And, uh, but no one came around to help, so we didn't feel too bad. You didn't feel too guilty about it whatsoever. How did she get up hey, there? Did you, like, toss her up there like a cheerleader? No, there was, there, no, no, there was enough other things for her. To, she's she's pretty good at that, that kind of thing. You know, if our grain leg plugs, she's the first person down in the pit with the bucket. That does so. not surprise me. She she's is a, a unicorn, ass. Chris. A unicorn. Yeah. Definitely. You I'd should marry give her if she'd make me some of those apple cookies. Right? Uh-huh. I'll fight you for you, it. You would clean out a leg pit for apple cookies? No, I'd marry Jen. No, I Jen. didn't say that. Yeah, I'd just marry Jen. Yeah. If she'd cook would... for me. Yeah. She's a great cook. I would marry her just for she, that. She's a very good cook. That's, I'm amazed. So anything you want. and cleans grain pits. I mean, that's seriously a unicorn. Yeah, she's way better than me. Well, let's like, talk about I... Chris's motorcycle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got to hear the story of the motorcycle, how it feels to have a hog that's like two wheels and not squealing. And has that always been a dream? Or where how'd that come about, Chris? It hasn't always been a dream. I don't know what happened to spur me to buy that. <laughs> uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, we always had dirt bikes around. And when the kids were young, we always had four-wheelers. And I... I was looking, I guess I was kind of looking for something that I could do that didn't take much effort. Uh, you know, if, if you get into horses, you got to feed them every day. If I don't use this thing for the next six months, it's just going to sit in the garage. I wanted something that was very low effort, but that we could enjoy. And I, I kind of like to get out and, and move around and look at the stuff. And uh, I don't know, I got to look on the internet, you know, you, you, you sit there and you're burning up time. You can either go out and feed the hogs or you can click on something else and stay in here another 10 minutes, get into the rabbit hole of, of the you know, internet. Yeah. And I was on, I was on Craigslist looking at, you know, I've got all these favorites, you know, you pull up every day, you pull up the obituaries for local paper and make sure no one you know has died. And then you, you know, you look at certain news and the grain markets and the weather. Well, the next one on my list is the farm and lawn segment of Craigslist. Craigslist. See, Anyway, one day I just kind of wandered off there on the motorcycles. Next thing you know, I spent two years looking at motorcycles on Craigslist, thinking, well, I wouldn't mind having that one. And uh, we bought, I, Jennifer, of course, Jennifer will support anything I, I decide to do. She's really good. She's a very supportive person. And uh, uh, we bought it, and she's agreed to ride with me on it. And uh, we've been to all sorts of little towns here, just, just around here, you know, little I don't want to say touristy towns because Indiana is not chock full of touristy towns, but we got the little towns with the shops in them within 40, 50 miles. And uh, we got some little roads around here that follow creeks and stuff. And we just put along and it's been a blast. Oh, yeah. it's, it, it's something we can do without being too far away from the Hawks. And it's cheap. You know, I mean, now I, of course we have three teenage kids. 
And anytime you go to do anything with those three teenage kids, you might as well just throw two hundred dollars out the window of the car. And Jennifer, I'll go ride this motorcycle, you know, and we'll come back and stop, fill up with gas, and it takes four dollars and fifty cents to fill up with gas, and then we go home. And uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, and she gets to That's take awesome. pictures, which she enjoys too. Yeah, she enjoys it. Yes, she definitely does. She's a good. She's a good sport. So. I had to crack up about you talking about Craigslist because my father-in-law, when Carl and I first started dating, um, was absolutely appalled to discover that you could buy, like, people on Craigslist. <laughs> like, he thought it was strictly had- tractors and it's Craigslist. Like, it was like it was like watching that uh, Duck Dynasty episode when What's-His-Face, the uncle, figured out Craigslist or whatever and kept calling it Craigslist. <laughs> like, so in our house, we joke that it's Craigslist and you can only buy tractors on it. Like he thinks it's it's still to this day. I'm pretty sure he thinks it's still tractor only sort of deal. I guess I haven't been to the same page as you. <laughs> hey, whatever. I'm I I don't I don't have any response to that one. <laughs> so, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we wrap it up? You poor poor guy who's married to us. We thank you for. Um, subjecting yourself to this, and I, I really wanted to have a good conversation us. with you, and supporting us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I kind of like it. Uh, you guys have a good uh, uh, way of getting along together and making it entertaining. So. Well, that's good. I'm glad because sometimes we get off on tangents that I'm like, do guys really listen to this? So, uh, some, sometimes the tangents are the entertaining part. <laughs> Anything else, no one wants to listen to the actual conversation. Uh, they just want to hear what we ordered on Amazon Prime that day. So, which I have these really kick-ass plantar fasciitis things coming. Because you know how your heels, anyone have that? Plantar yeah. Fasci- yeah. Where your heels get, well, these are these, like, they're supposed to be, like, arch supports. So we'll see if it helps. Because lately I'm, like, an old person. Like, if I take the dogs and the kid for a walk and come home. And like sit down for a minute and go to stand back up. It's terrible. You need Which, to order would... Brooks tennis the shoes. shoes. Yeah, really. The tennis. I'll have shoes, to try yeah. them. I'll you try too, them. Chris. They're great. Yeah, anything right now because it's I'm a mess. And Carl's like, "What's it feel like to get old?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know." <laughs> you. That's what it feels like. That's <laughs> where did you get? Where did you get them at? Uh, the the uh, the arch support things. Amazon. Yeah. I, t- I tried all sorts of cheap ones. I had I had a fallen arch one time. Tried all sorts of cheap ones, and I finally went to that Good Feet store and spent like three hundred dollars. I was I was sick leaving the place, and and they fixed it. Really? Now I don't have to wear. Well, that's it. what and I'm I, tempted to do. I, I, is go if this doesn't work these these arch things, and then buying new tennis shoes. Then um, I I don't know what I'll do because I just I've never really had a foot, and I know part of it. Like I'm still carrying like. 30 pounds of cheese sticks from and fried pickles from when I was pregnant with Colton, you know, and I just, uh, I need it's to probably lose more. that. Do you wear flip flops a lot? All that, the time. That's when and it I'm is, barefoot Angie. and we have yeah. floors and I'm constantly barefoot in the house. And so now I wear my mom vacation shoes. Carl calls them. They're like sketcher slip on shoes. And he's like, Oh, are you going to, do you need your fanny pack? <laughs> and so, yeah, at this rate with my mom vacation shoes and my, fallen arches or whatever the hell it is like i'm just a mess so i'm falling apart but so we'll see because they came i just got notification that the the postman dropped them off to me so i'm sure he shook his head as he dropped my giant because i got paper towel too 
So you know how uh, big that box is. I have I had a prime uh, pantry box it. delivered today too, and those things are huge. I get embarrassed about the number of boxes that come here. You know, the. I got home today and there was a stack that was like four feet tall sitting outside the door. Carl! What do you do do with all the empty boxes? She has to bring them them. home. Do they? That's what. uh... I stick them inside with some crayons and markers and then they decorate it and make it into a little house. See, I tried to tell Carl that we needed to do that for Colton and he told me no and he breaks them up and takes them to town. So that's what well, he you does. Can do but that he, after they color him too. Oh my god, you should hear him! Like he is like he hates it. He feels the same way you do, Chris. You guys can join like a support group and talk about how life is terrible because you get all of the Amazon Prime stuff. Because that's he's he's in the same boat you are. He's like really more boxes, and I'm like, well, I just I needed something. Only two boxes were Amazon today, and the other two were not mine. So. It's not all my fault. The other two weren't Amazon, but they were not mine. All, all this technology has just allowed these big businesses to basically put a vacuum tube into my home to suck the money out of it. <laughs> I know, but saying to your point, Chris, we don't have to deal with people when we do it this way. Yeah. I can just yeah. type on my computer what I want. Even my groceries, I don't have to go deal with people. They bring them to my car. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's... <laughs> It saves us from murdering someone after dealing with toddlers all day. Like, that's how I feel. I don't know. It's amazing. You, you know, I, I, you guys think that with your toddlers, you've got it rough. And I'll admit, they're shitting and throwing up on stuff. You don't want that done. But, you know, you just wait. They're going to, one of these days, they're going to get a car and they're going to wreck it. And you're going to have to pay the insurance upcharge and... It doesn't get any better. So the peeing oh, in the cardboard this... Easter basket yesterday in the middle of their bedroom is not going to be the worst? Okay, it's, it's been a while since they've done that, but not as long as you think. <laughs> we had toothpaste on the floor. I mean, if they were drunk, I'd forgive them, but they're not. <laughs> It'd be just like a snap back to, to college for Karen there because she hung out with a rough crowd. I was uh, the rough crowd. <laughs> She was the rough crowd. I was not. I was an angel. I was just stone. Whatever, most of the time. you weed smoker. <laughs> you weed you weed head. Go. <laughs> so all right, on that note then. Uh, we really on, appreciate Chris. it. Yeah, Chris. We we thank you. Like we really do. Uh, and we appreciate the support and uh your ability we to just kind of roll it. yeah, roll with the punches and, and you're definitely um our our favorite uh husband to the hot messes that is girls talk egg even the ones we're married to we like you more than them sometimes well i I appreciate that i think yeah it's not saying much i mean the bar most of the time is is set relatively low but you're still above it so we thank you and uh we thank you guys for listening uh as always we'll be back next week at some point in the week just you know we like the element of surprise when it comes to releasing the podcast so uh we will be back and uh Have a good one.